so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. My husband actually gets on to me for swallowing so loud. You I'm like, swallow, it is the way God made me. You swallow very hard. What can I? Well, what can I do about it? Well, sw- swallow in a I can't more it, gentle fashion. It's it's my physiology, like <laughs> the way that my what is that even called? Throat <clears throat> pipe esophagus. Is made. Esophagus. Yeah. Well, it's just it's very. <sighs> Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and back with me this week on a regular episode, fresh from vacation, is Brent Leatherwood. Hello, Lindsay. It's great to be back with you. Why don't you tell them the little story that your wife shared about your drive back from where you were on vacation and what you did? Because... I think people will just think, wow, there are people in the world that care that much and do those kinds of things. I mean, I called someone to let them know that they had misplaced something. No, you called a random truck stop. No, no, no. Or rest stop stop. owner. Google manager who manager Googled who it was to tell them that their Tennessee flag was was upside upside down. down. Right. Well, because he is, you know, like I used to be a, a, fellow servant uh, for the state of Tennessee and he had the he had the state flag upside down which I look it's the first rest stop that you come to in East Tennessee I I, I feel like that's an important place to roll out the welcome mat the right side up <laughs> It just, folks, this is it what It was a I'm, great call. That this, was very friendly. This is what I'm working. You no, know, it's very suspicious from how, how well, Meredith Well, you could shared. tell that when, when he was talking to me over the phone, he you could tell he was like, uh, is there like a hidden camera here that's sure. capturing this conversation? <laughs> I'm so sure. So this is what it's like to work with Brent Leatherwood. No, I feel like I helped him out. For you, his job. You did. So So people don't realize this, but the Tennessee flag, it's it's actually it's got three stars, and the three stars are kind of off center, purposely so. And that tells you whether you have the flag right side up or or not. And so this one at a rest stop in, in the state was it was upside down. This is probably not what the people tuned in to hear. And so I'm really not sure why we spent this much time talking about this. Uh, I still think it's funny, Brent. It's just giving a little bit of a window into who you are and how you operate and what your wife has to live with on a daily basis. So, <laughs> But before we tell more Brent stories, let's just go ahead and start talking about what's been happening lately. And we'll start with uh, what the ERLC has been featuring this week. And first up is a piece by Hannah Daniel out of our DC office. And it's an excellent explainer about a new wave of pro-family policies 
and how that's an encouraging trend in the pro-life movement. So she writes in uh, the intro, since the overturning of Roe in the Dobbs decision, we have been talking about regularly how that is a major victory for the pro-life movement. However, it's just the beginning of what those of us who believe in the value of all of life from the moment of conception until the day of natural death, we've been saying that although that was a major victory in the pro-life movement, there is still a lot of work to be done to support these babies and these abortion-vulnerable mothers and families in the hard decisions that they're making and in the tough work of raising children or in choosing adoption for their child. They, there's just a lot of support that is required. And one of the areas of support is economic. And Hannah says this, financial insecurity is cited by 73% of women who choose to have an abortion as the primary driver of their choice. For Christians, that statistic should represent a sobering challenge. While we will continue to work relentlessly through policy and law to make abortion illegal across the country, that simply is not enough. We must also redouble our efforts to make abortion unthinkable to a woman in crisis because of the abundance of support and resources available to her. And she goes through to talk about a biblical foundation for supporting families and what Southern Baptists have said through our resolutions. And then she points out recent legislative proposals, policy proposals that lawmakers have been making. And we're not saying this one is better than the other, but what we're doing and what she's doing is pointing out the fact that people are starting to think in ways that would incentivize families, incentivize marriage, help provide some economic support so that mothers would be less likely to choose abortion. And while it's complicated and not a one-and-done thing, we are still very encouraged by this trend of these pro-family policies that are being proposed. Right, exactly what you said. We're encouraged by this trend because it helps push back on this narrative out there that really is not true, that the pro-life movement has only cared about the lives of these pre-born children up until they're born. And then after that, it's as if we, we don't actually care. Well, that's not true. And so this is an encouraging trend, and we are thankful that our policymakers are, are putting such significant thought uh, into ways that our laws can encourage and reward or, or just make it easier to have a family. In the Roe environment, it was very easy to have an abortion. And now in this post-Roe environment, frankly, it, it should be easy to have and raise a family. And look, that's policymakers have always used our laws to incentivize uh, certain behaviors, whether it's through tax law or whatever. In this sense, it is a good thing that we are envisioning more proposals out there to help individuals uh, have and, and raise families. And so, uh, you know, whether it is a, a mother in an unplanned pregnancy, a, a family that's just in, in crisis, uh, whatever the situation is, we should make it so that the family is both protected and defended and, and rewarded. And why is that important to us as Christians? Because the family, the family unit is one of those distinct institutions uh, that was created by our God. And so this is a, I mean, back to what you said, the, the title that you gave this is, is very appropriate. This is an encouraging trend. 
And uh, we want more of our policymakers, whether they're at the federal level or the state level, to be thinking along these these pro-family lines. That's exactly right, Brent. And the reality is for those of us who do have support and who have did not have pregnancies in crisis and were do have our planned families and very much welcomed our children and marriage, it's still hard. It's still hard. So I can't imagine doing that without a support system and without resources to be able to raise a family and raise children. So that's why it's so, so important for us to think about how we can come around these women and support them. Well, it's all about the principle that you're operating from, right? I mean, for for so many years now, our culture, our legal environment, it is basically just sent a signal to mothers, to anxious fathers, basically just sent a signal that that preborn child is an inconvenience. So it's very easy to dispose of it. And that is that culture that we've lived in. And what we're hoping to move to now in this post-Roe timeframe is a culture of life where hopefully the underlying principle actually begins from a, a very Christian perspective that that preborn life is in fact a blessing. And let's help those families see that and and reward that. And so that's that's I think that's what I'm I'm trying to say is let's move from that row pro-abortion framework that we were in to now what is uh, hopefully going to be a culture of life. Yes, let it be, Lord. Next up, we have an article by my friend, Jenna Fleming. She is an educator, and she has engaged in different schooling options for her children. And with school about to start, or it's already started for some, this article is titled, What School Option Will You Choose for Your Child? A Helpful Rubric for Making Education Decisions. And I like this article because Jenna doesn't say any one option is the best for somebody. You know, as Christians, we know this is not a black and white issue. This is not a first-tier issue. This is a wisdom issue for your family. And I appreciated that she just gives us wisdom to operate off of. So, like, what's the cultural climate of your district? What are your current family dynamics? How are how involved are we in our local church? And then she gives us three action steps. Pray for wisdom. Get equipped. Keep an open hands mentality. And she reminds us, at the end here, and this is what's most important, regardless of what decision we make for our family, keep the conversation going and the relationship with your children strong as you continually point them to Jesus. If you are homeschoolers, private schoolers, public schoolers, or somewhere in between, the most important education we can give our children is teaching them who our God is and living a life following Him as our King. In the kitchen, at the ball field, during homework, in the car, or in the yard, we will teach our children to love the Lord with all that they are. There is no better choice than this. And that, for us as believers, is ultimately what it comes down to. This is certainly timely with the school year upon us, uh, or even started in, in some areas. And, you know, obviously, Scripture doesn't lay out any particular uh, mode of education. Uh, so, But I, I like this broad piece that she's written that just kind of explores and, and, and gives parents a, well, as you said, a rubric to just kind of determine what is the best uh, for their family, what works best in the context where God has planted them. And then finally, we have another article focused on pro-life work, and this is by our intern, Daniel Hostetter. And this is just a plug if you didn't listen to last week's episode to go back because I was able to talk with our fabulous interns from D.C. and Nashville, and you will want to hear 
just their wisdom and their hearts, they were a fabulous group. So Daniel has a piece titled, Is Pro-Life Work Deceptive? How the Truth of Scripture Drives the Work of Many Pregnancy Resource Centers. And this all stems from a comment that a senator, a U.S. senator, made. And he opens up and says this, U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren recently made national news when she argued that the government should shut down women's health organizations she labeled deceptive. We need to shut them down here in Massachusetts, and we need to shut them down all around the country, Warren told reporters. You should not be able to torture a pregnant person like that. However, she was not referring to abortion clinics that exploit vulnerable women and take the lives of preborn children. Rather, the senator was speaking out against pro-life pregnancy resource centers, which should just blow our minds. In fact, the Democrats, congressional Democrats, uh, introduced a Stop Anti-Abortion Disinformation Act in June following this landmark Dobbs decision. And really what the narrative has been is that pro-life pregnancy resource centers are filled with misinformation and disinformation, and they were leading women astray, which we know is the furthest thing from the truth. And Daniel unpacks that here in this article, and he talks about the root of these arguments and how ultimately what it comes down to is, as he says, the prevailing doctrine of expressive individualism, that we just want to live how we want to live, so we make up a narrative that supports the way that we want to live. And what we want to do as believers is counter that with the truth, the truth of what God says about life and how we are called to live in such a way that puts our our neighbor's good above our own individualism. And look, when Senator Warren was talking about you know, the genesis for, for this proposal, she was using just broad, sweeping language about— uh, these pro-life clinics. And, you know, maybe there are some exceptions, but my experience with these pro-life pregnancy centers largely matches up with a uh, friend of the RLC, Dana McCain, who, when this was all happening, she she pointed out, she's like, look, I've, I've been in a number of pregnancy clinics, and it's pretty clear right off the bat when somebody calls what the center is all about and the services it provides. And she recounted a story because it had happened so many times where an abortion-minded woman is calling the center looking for an abortion, and the person who picks up the phone says, I understand that's what you're looking for. We don't offer abortions here. Let me tell you what we do offer. And and so it's it's just very clear right off the bat that this isn't an abortion clinic, and that's the experience I've had uh, with the centers that I, that we've worked with here at the RLC, and I'm sure that that is actually the experience for the vast vast majority, if not all, uh, of these pro life uh, pregnancy resource clinics. So Senator Warren's proposal is just it's wrong headed. It doesn't actually comport with reality. And Daniel does a great job here of, of actually getting this down to what it is. It's about trying to combat actual pro-life speech and pro-life efforts uh, to make sure that women know that there is an option other than abortion, and it's a viable option. And you can absolutely have a healthy, thriving life uh, with the the blessing uh, that, that comes with uh, a new child. And so that's what this is about. And Daniel's piece does a great job of helping the reader understand that. Post-Dobbs, the conversation in our culture is constantly 
shifting from one thing to another regarding the pro-life movement and abortion and policies. So there is a lot of information coming at us fast. And as exampled through Hannah's piece and Daniel's piece, we're going to try to consistently provide you with updates and with articles that help explain what is going on in our culture as it relates to abortion, how Christians should think about it, and what we can continue to do to make abortion illegal and unthinkable in our country and to promote a culture of life. You know, as I say every week, we have a lot of other great resources on our site. I encourage you to go to ERLC.com and check them out. But for now, Brent, that's what's happening on ERLC.com. Moving into our culture section this week, Brent, why don't you fill us in on what's been going on? All right, Lindsay, we will pick up right where you left off with that helpful piece on abortion by going to Kansas, where this week, I know a whole bunch of our friends and colleagues out there were wondering about the fate of the constitutional amendment that was on the ballot this past Tuesday. So this first story comes to us from Baptist Press. Kansans defeated the Value Them Both Amendment by a 59 to 41% margin on Tuesday in the nation's first statewide vote on abortion since the U.S. Supreme Court reversed the Roe v. Wade ruling. In its June 24th decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, the High Court returned abortion policy to the states by overruling the 1973 opinion that legalized abortion nationwide. Just for clarity, we should help folks understand, this ballot initiative was already scheduled to be voted on prior to the, the Dobbs decision happening. It's only in light of the Dobbs decision happening that it, it took on even more uh, importance. The reason it was placed on the ballot was because, according to the story, it was a response to a decision by the Kansas Supreme Court uh, the proposed amendment said that the state constitution, quote, does not require government funding of abortion and does not create or secure a right to abortion. The state Supreme Court had ruled in 2019 that the constitution protects the right to an abortion. The defeat of the Kansas amendment came amidst frequent actions in the post-Roe era by courts that have been both favorable and unfavorable to state bans and by the Biden administration to try and protect abortion rights. So this actually was very familiar to me because this mirrors a constitutional amendment that we did here in Tennessee back in 2014 that was successful. It was also an uphill climb, but in that instance, it really started gaining momentum in the last six weeks or so as people really started to understand this is a pro-life amendment and it will reverse, just as happened here, in, in, or as was the situation here in Kansas, it would reverse a prior state Supreme Court ruling. And uh, to this day, the work on that amendment is, is one of the things I'm, I'm most proud of in my, my time in electoral politics. But this constitutional amendment, it failed. And the reality is it, there's probably a whole host of reasons uh, for why it went down. A, anytime you have a statewide effort like this, it requires a gigantic investment in terms of educating voters. And I'm, I'm not, not familiar with whether that uh, happened here. But then B, since it did happen in the immediate aftermath of Dobbs, I mean, it <laughs> Dobbs, for better or worse, just basically turned over everything at the state level. And so states now are really active in an area of policy where a, a lot of states just hadn't been. And then B, 
uh, I know this, over the last month, pro-life supporters in Kansas were having to push back on the messaging that was coming from pro-choice supporters, abortion supporters, that this was going to criminalize uh, mothers uh, and that this was even going to uh, allow for the prosecution of, of things such as, you know, ectopic pregnancies and, and miscarriage. I mean, so there was just a lot of messaging out there that's not accurate, but it was putting pro-life supporters really on the defensive. And, and so because you're having to bat down these instances, they seemed, at least in the the final stretch, to not even be able to get a positive message out about how this is a pro-life move, how it would save lives. And so it was, uh, it, I mean, it's a setback. Uh, there's there's no doubt about it. It's a, it's a setback for pro-life efforts there. But what it doesn't change is the importance of the work of our pastors, uh, the work of fellow Christians uh, around the state of Kansas to just continue to help their neighbors understand uh, the value and the sanctity of those preborn lives, why they deserve to be protected, and you know, alluding to something we talked about earlier, why it's incumbent upon state legislators there and state leaders there to push for policies that support mothers, uh, that support families. And I think that's the way that we'll, we'll get through this. I, I've read some comments that are in this BP story and elsewhere about how uh, the pro-life supporters there are, are probably going to go back to the drawing board and push for a, an, an incremental step. I, to be clear, I actually think this is an incremental step because functionally what this ballot initiative and the constitutional amendment was saying is that their state legislature would have the ability to regulate abortion. And so that actually is uh, an incremental step. Uh, what they're talking about is maybe going back and and pushing for a 15-week a uh, abortion ban, which was the law that was at the center of the Dobbs case or, or something similar. Well, whatever it is, if it saves one additional life, it's worth pursuing. That That would be what I would say. And our colleague, Dan, our former colleague, Dan Darling, he's always a colleague in our hearts, uh, he he pointed out that we don't need to let this defeat drive a narrative that most people are pro-abortion, no holds bar. Because we've talked about this even in some pieces that we have done, that most people favor abortion restrictions from about, I think Dan in his comments said 12 weeks on, but it might be more like 15 weeks. I don't quite remember. But this doesn't need to be used as proof that, see, our nation favors right, this is no one restrictions. State. This is one right, state. This is one state and one moment in time for a state. So I think it's important to remember that and to not be discouraged overall. Right. No, exactly. I mean, this is now what the playing field is in the wake of the Dobbs decision. States now are able to pursue uh, their own initiatives as it relates to abortion. And so in that sense, conceivably, there will be 50 different routes taken. There will inevitably be successes as well as challenges in that environment. That's because democratic efforts uh, in, in our republic are inherently messy. Um, and, and so this should not be seen as some sort of nationwide uh, rebuke of the pro-life movement. Instead, it should be seen as a setback for pro-life efforts in Kansas based on some pretty 
specific factors, although I, I mean, some of the overall, you know, reaction to the the downfall of Roe certainly played into this. But Kansas is different than probably the state that you're in if you're listening to this. And so it shouldn't be taken as that. Absolutely. Uh, we don't need to overread one particular election result. And that is definitely where some of the, the national narrative uh, is. But when talking about the national narrative, we should point this out. Uh, Gallup this week released findings that abortion is actually moving up on the priority list of uh, voters. And that's not too surprising uh, in the wake of Dobbs and, and just how much we are actually talking about this issue. But Gallup in their release said this, when Americans are asked to name the most important problem facing the U.S., 8% of the results mention a focus on abortion. While not high on an absolute basis, this is the highest such percentage since Gallup began tracking mentions of abortion in 1984. Additionally, another 6% of Americans named a related issue, problems with the nation's judicial systems and courts. Abortion ranks behind three other issues on the most important list in Gallup's July 5th through 26th update. Inflation and dysfunctional government or bad leadership top the list with another 12% of Americans making general complaints about the economy. In addition to specific mentions of inflation, 5% of respondents mentioned fuel and gas prices. So again, it, it's not like abortion is just racing up the list and it is just everybody's top concern, but it's a noticeable uptick in when you look at something like Gallup, which tracks you know, with a regular survey, what voters are talking about and interested in. And and so that's just, that is something uh, of note for sure. Well, and it makes sense in light of the national conversation and the historic ruling about yeah. abortion that just came down. Yeah, and, and to, we should be abundantly clear. Just because it's moved up the list slightly doesn't mean that that is a move towards pro-choice or pro-life. As a matter of fact, it's probably reflective of both. I mean, look, I I'm certainly more uh, motivated about uh, the pro-life cause because it's like, wow, there's a lot of opportunity now given the way that all the states can interact. Like, it, it is just necessarily higher on my list. So I would answer that as a pretty high priority if I was to be asked by Gallup what my priorities are. So that that's the thing. Just because it is rising on the list of things that voters uh, are talking about or concerned about doesn't necessarily mean that, oh, well, that means more pro-choice people are coming out. That's just not the case. Another big story this week was House Speaker Nancy Pelosi landing in Taiwan and by doing so, angering China. So this story comes to us from Axios and it says this, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi landed in Taiwan Tuesday despite threats from the Chinese government that there would be, quote, serious consequences for the visit. Beijing claims sovereignty over Taiwan and reacts furiously to any gestures that seem to treat the self-governing island as an independent country. Pelosi, who is the most senior U.S. lawmaker to visit since 1997, tweeted that the visit honors America's unwavering commitment to supporting Taiwan's vibrant democracy. She made the trip, which had bipartisan support in Congress, despite President Biden cautioning publicly that the U.S. military felt it was not a good idea right now. So uh, this this dominated uh, the news for quite a, as a matter of fact, as we're recording this, it still does because the Chinese military is continuing to conduct drills in the areas around Taiwan, the territorial waters. As a matter of fact, 
just before we came on the air, Japan said it was concerned because a few of the missile launches that took place with the Chinese military had actually landed in the Japanese economic zone, which was a concern. So the reality is, I think you can disagree uh, as somebody who is watching all this play out, whether it was wise for the speaker to make the trip to Taiwan. But once it became public, as a matter of fact, I think it was leaked that she was thinking of, of going to Taiwan. Once it became public that that was a possibility, I don't think you can disagree that she should not have then gone. Uh, because if you respond to the threats and intimidation from the Chinese Communist Party, you are sending a poor signal to allies in the region and, and whatnot. So I personally think it was an important moment that Speaker Pelosi uh, went to Taiwan, and, and her visit does send the signal that she she mentioned uh, in, in her release that we do stand with Taiwan. Taiwan is a democratic ally, and it's important in this moment as autocratic and authoritarian regimes are uh, ascending that our friends and partners across the globe understand that we are resolute in wanting to pursue uh, an agenda of freedom across the globe. We don't normally uh, appreciate what Nancy Pelosi does. So this (laughs) this is refreshing. Now, help me understand. So did she like effectively just, was she insubordinate to President Biden? Like not listen to him or... No, not at all. It, it, well, I mean, our system of government doesn't work like that. She okay. heads she heads the Article I branch of government. She is her own independent uh, leader in, in our political structure. And so she has the right to really go uh, wherever she pleases because she is, after the vice president, uh, in the line of succession to become president, uh, there is a duty owed to her to make sure that she is protected as she travels overseas. So obviously, something like this is not taken on lightly. The U.S. military uh, was was fully briefed on uh, what she was planning to do, and and so and I mean we should give credit uh, to the administration, to the Pentagon, our our Defense Department leaders, because when she landed in Taiwan, she had a very impressive array of uh, U.S. military uh, that was anchored close by to Taiwan to make sure that China did not. Uh, do anything untoward uh, to her personally or, or while she was there. So, no, she she is an independent uh, leader in, in our government. And so, no, she wasn't insubordinate. Uh, as a matter of fact, that's, that's part of China's uh, critique of this is because President Biden and Speaker Pelosi are a part of the same political party. They were trying to say that it, it carries more meaning, that in fact, uh, America wants to change its its foreign policy as it relates to China and, and Taiwan, which we're in a – our foreign policy as it relates to them is known as something called strategic ambiguity, which which means we don't formally legally recognize Taiwan as independent from China. But we do make a lot of other moves uh, that support their democracy and their right to protect themselves uh, from for example, a potential Chinese uh, invasion. And so that's that's essentially what her, her visit signified, is that we're going to continue to honor those commitments. And China just doesn't like it. 
And we need to be very clear about that. The Southern Baptist Convention, for for our audience, uh, has long called for China to be opposed, uh, whether it is through democratic reforms, whether it's through uh, opposing them morally, or, or whether it's calling out the specific actions that they're doing. For example, right now against the Uyghur people and and us being the first convention of churches to call that uh, a genocide. And so the, the SBC actually has a fairly long and distinct record of calling out the atrocities uh, of the, the Chinese government. And so in that sense, what Speaker Pelosi did here very much aligns with, with that sentiment. Moving on, our next story is actually one that is just utterly tragic. Uh, a member of Congress and two of her staff members that were traveling with her were killed in a, uh, a car accident. And so this story comes to us from Reuters, and it says, U.S. Congresswoman Jackie Walorski and two members of her staff died on Wednesday when the vehicle they were traveling in collided head-on with a car that had veered into their lane, police in Indiana, and her office said. Walorski, 58, a Republican who represented Indiana's 2nd Congressional District in the U.S. House of Representatives, was mourned by President Joe Biden and her colleagues in Congress as an honorable public servant who strived to work across party lines to deliver for her constituents. The White House said it would fly flags at half-staff in her memory. The congresswoman had been traveling with her communications chief, Emma Thompson, 28, and one of her district directors, Zachary Potts, 27, uh, when they were traveling in Elkhart County, Illinois. Walorski had been serving for several terms, and the story notes this, that prior to her election in 2012 to the House, Walorski served three terms in the Indiana legislature, spent four years as a missionary in Romania along with her husband, and worked as a television news reporter in South Bend, Indiana, according to a biography posted on her congressional website. President Joe Biden said he and Walorski may have represented different parties and disagreed on many issues, but she was respected by members of both parties for her work on the House Ways and Means Committee on which she served. Speaker Pelosi said in a statement that she passionately brought the voices of her North Indiana constituents to Congress, and she was admired by colleagues on both sides of the aisle for her personal kindness. So I, I read this uh late Wednesday afternoon when the news was coming. And it's just, I mean, there's no other way to say it. It's, it's tragic. And it's also a reminder because of the the staff members who died alongside her. Like, you you kind of forget, right, when, when we're seeing these folks on news programs or hearing about things they're, they're doing, we forget that there is a staff uh, around them who serve faithfully uh, in, in Congress and I mean, this—it's such a devastating story, not just for that office, but for for Capitol Hill and for the communities uh, that she served back in Indiana. It's so sad. And actually, I used to live in Indiana, right down the road from South Bend and close to Elkhart. So the area hits close to home. Mm. It is tragic. And as you pointed out, our former colleague Jeff Pickering said. It brings to mind the fact that underneath all the politics are just real men and women who are serving. And these kinds of things have real effects on people and families. So we need to just pray for their family members. It's just so sad. Yeah. One of our colleagues, Chelsea Sublick, she she knew 
the communications director, they had just been talking uh, just a few days ago about uh, trying to get lunch together soon. So it's it is a very sad moment, and it is appropriate that uh, flags will fly in half staff at, at half staff, I should say. And uh, of course, our thoughts and prayers are with her family, uh, the family members and, and friends uh, of those staff members. And it, it was a hard day on Capitol Hill for sure. So, Lindsay, those are the three big stories uh, this week. And, and so that's your look at This Week in Culture. And now it's time for The Lunchroom, where we tell you what we've been talking about with each other. Brent, what do you have for us? Well, not to uh, not to talk about something else that's sad, but this week the world of baseball lost one of, if not the most well-known broadcast voice uh, it has ever had, Vin Scully, who narrated a, a number of important games but was specifically attached to the Los Angeles Dodgers. Um, actually, he started in Brooklyn. But he he had been a, a voice for so long, and and I mean he he called Hank Aaron's home run game uh, where he he broke Babe Ruth's record. So I mean he he was more than just the voice of the Dodgers. In many ways, he was the the voice of baseball. Well, I found a touching piece about his legacy over on Fox News, and I, I just thought it was great. And so I've, I've shared it here in our, our show notes, but. The author writes this, Joe Morgan, he writes this, It was the soothing tone of Scully's voice that taught fans the game of baseball, that brought families together after dinner, and that still to this day reminds us of home. And I just thought, what a perfect little way to encapsulate all that Vin Scully uh, meant to baseball fans and especially Dodgers fans. And um, he died uh, earlier this week at the age of 94. And uh, so he, he lived a good long life and he brought baseball to life for so many. Well, Brent, what a sad lunchroom. And I care about this because it involves somebody dying. And so I'm very sorry for your loss. I don't know what to say because I don't know who Vin Scully is. And it, once again, it involves <laughs> baseball. <laughs> and I've been instructed to not talk about snacks because that's generally what I talk about when you bring up baseball. So so I'm sorry that the voice of the Dodgers has, has died. He lived a long life, but who will take his place? Do you want to take his place as the voice of the Dodgers? Or would that just be terrible because you're a Braves fan? Yeah, no, I, I, he, he, he would be in the category of irreplaceable. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry to pivot. I didn't know what you were going to talk about in your lunchroom and that it was such a sad story. Mine is just a funny, completely useless video because I feel like sometimes we just need those things in our lives. And I like to follow Jennifer Garner. I follow her because she just posts funny things, but she posted this video of this big burly guy on this motorcycle and the and you could hear his music and the person who pulled up next to him was recording him. He was rocking out to Taylor Swift's um, Shake It Off, which is also an excellent 80s video, workout video that's been dubbed to that. But he's rocking out to this and then he drives away and he's got this arm lift that he does as he's just dancing to it. And it's just something that you didn't think that would go together. You didn't think this big burly guy riding a motorcycle would be rocking out to Taylor Swift's Shake It Off and enjoying it so much. So it will just give you a smile in the midst of your day if you click on the link and watch the video. Mm, There it is. I don't think you and I are meant to be in the lunchroom together. 
Well, we I was just say, have very I was different say, ideas. Another, another thing that doesn't really go together <laughs> is your <laughs> your videos in lunch in our lunchroom. We you obviously do not join us in the lunchroom because that's what we do. We share videos, et cetera. When's the last time you've been in the lunchroom? Well, this is post-COVID. <laughs> <laughs> we would share videos. So anyway, well, and hopefully somebody finds that funny in the midst of their day when they just need a good little laugh. I'm glad that you decided to come back from vacation, Brent, and bring some normalcy back to the ERLC podcast this go. week. That's That's what I'm here for, is a return to normalcy. Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. And in addition to listening to the ERLC podcast, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday, and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology and ethics. And if you like staying informed about important policy decisions that matter to Southern Baptists, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill, which is hosted by our colleague, Chelsea Sobolik. Search for The Digital Public Square and Capital Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.